And we're certainly better off indoors than outdoors, I think, today. Um, we're going to open our worship this morning by singing two songs. Um, first one from the hymn book and the second from Praise the Lord. Is my God, how wonderful thou art. And particularly for this morning, our focus is on verse 2. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. And after that, we're going to sing from Praise the Lord, uh, number 205, which is Jesus' name above all names. Father God, how wonderful you are. Your majesty is so great that we can only just start to comprehend it. You are the creator of all things, and you are the creator of each one of us. Father, it's amazing to think that you are with us, that you sent your son to say, I am with you. We think about our Lord Jesus today, and we think about all that he was and all that he is to us, and the truth he reveals about you, Father, about your character, and about your person. Be with us, we pray, and, and bless us this morning as we continue our service to you and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Andy's going to be doing the announcements for us, um, and we'll do the collections while the announcements are, are running. And the second collection is a special collection, um, as advertised. So we're collecting the second collection for the African um, Appeal. Father God, you hear all the, the conversations, the things we say out loud and the things that we say within. You hear them all, Father. You are a wonderful God, a majestic God, who's close to our poor hearts. And we pray that we will feel that closeness, Father. And we especially pray that that closeness will be felt by Rosie's brother-in-law, Ryan, as he awaits major surgery, Lord. May he feel your closeness, your peace, and your comfort. And Colin Boxall, who, who we know well, and who is suffering from depression, Father, be close to him, and may he feel your closeness. May he see, see your light in the darkness, and be with all the family who try, try to help him. We think of Pauline, our, our lovely sister Pauline, Father, and who has many things to deal with and to cope with, yet is always so welcoming when we see her. Be with her, we pray, Father. And further afield, Lord, we've been collecting money for the um, appeal for the drought in Africa. So many hundreds of miles away, Father, and we are helpless in many ways, but help us to give what we can and may the, the money that we can raise find its way to be useful to relieve suffering to relieve the, the pain Father you, you give us your light and it's a light not to hide under a bushel but to share with other people so for all the announcements that Andy has made we pray that they will be blessed by you so that your light will shine from us this week and not just in the organised activities, Father, but in our day-to-day -day lives. May we be a, a shining light for your glory, for your love and compassion, for your truth, and for the hope that we have in you.
In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing together um, from Praise Lord number 23. It's always difficult to, I find difficult to pick something to sing um, after we've done the announcements and pastoral um, prayer, etc. Because you don't know what's going to be said in the pastoral prayer and what, what things are going to be, um, what issues are going to come, come to, to it. But this song, Drop Thy Still Jews, I think applies across the board, doesn't it? That we all need to find God's peace in our lives. Whatever, however our lives are going, whatever things we face, we all need to know the peace of God. So, number 23, Drop Thy Still Jews. I'm going to take a reading now, uh, which is from Isaiah chapter 40. And we're reading this chapter because we're going to be uh, thinking about the question posed by verse 18. Um, and then it's going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 40 for us. Thanks, Ben. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales? and the hills in a balance. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To, him, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman cast it, 
and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's a, it's a great chat that with lots of, lots of ideas in it. But like I say, we're going to focus on a, on a particular idea. Um, the chapter describes just how great God is, doesn't it? It describes how wonderful he is and how unapproachable in lots of ways God is. He, who can work out his knowledge? Who can work out how he does things? No, no one can. It's, it is beyond us. And we kind of, as I, as I pointed out, we sang that um, in, 100, in 102. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Like endless wisdom, boundless power and awful purity. So God is so amazing and so, so grand. And, and in Isaiah, in verse 18, he asks the question, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And he goes on to talk about people trying to make idols. And the point is, there's nothing in the universe that we can see, we, that we can compare God to. Nothing that has his likeness. Nothing at all. Except maybe something maybe there is something in the whole universe which has God's likeness and that's Peter and it's Emily and it's Malcolm and it's Jack and it's Debbie we all have God's likeness and that's what we're going to think about this morning and the story starts in Genesis chapter 1 so that's where we'll, we'll head to first of all Genesis chapter 1 And verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all the creatures that are moved along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So that's the start point of what we're going to be thinking about. And there are three uh, ways that we can understand this passage. I'm going to look at all three of them. There are three strong flavours of what it is to be in the image of God. There are three distinct flavours, but they, they are in some ways related to each other. And the first one is a very literal meaning. Because the word used here for being the image of God is a very, very literal uh, word. It means a physical image, uh, which raises some challenges in my mind. But just, just, to, just to appreciate how physical it is, um, you just have to turn to it, and this verse is not for those of a, a sensitive disposition. But Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 17 uses the same word, and it says... You took the fine jewellery I gave you and the jewellery made of my gold and silver and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. That's the, when it talks about idols there, it's using the same word for image and likeness that Genesis used. It's a very physical word. So you and I are in the physical image of God. Now that's a hard thing to comprehend, isn't it? But before we get bogged down in questions like, I wonder how big God's nose is, and does he have a beard? Is he black, white, or somewhere in between? Before we get bogged down in those, those kind of questions, um, Genesis does offer us kind of a little bit of a retreat from that point. It talks about God, made, um, God makers in his image, male and female, he created them. Now, I'm not going to go into the details, but males and females are physically different. I'm not going to say any more. So that just tells us that we can take a step back from being absolutely hyper-literal about being in the physical image of God, who is, after all, spirit. I think the answer to what this is getting at lies in understanding the primary focus of, of Genesis. And that is to speak to a people who, for generation after generation, had been amidst um, the people of Egypt and all their idols and all their false gods. They'd imbibed all its stories, they'd seen the images of Ra, of Horus, of Isis, and they were wishing that they could have an image of their own, which they could look at, something physical which they can hold on to and say, that's God. And what God is saying is, if you want to have a representation of me, if you want to have something physical which you can cling on to and see me in, well, it's in your brother and sister. It's in that lump of flesh walking in front of you. And that's is a massive challenge. Because it's easy to see God in a lump of wood or a lump of gold, especially because you've made it yourself. Because you can make a lump of God, a lump of, uh, a lump of wood or a lump of gold into anything you want it to be, can't you? You can, sh- you can mould it to be in your likeness. You can make it say the things that you want it to say. And it's, it's uh, noticeable that if you look at the pagan gods, they, they had an uncanny resemblance to exactly what you'd want them to be. But God is saying, no, 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 you've got to find me in the physical person in front of you, in your brother and sister. And that's a big challenge because we can't make each other how we want want them to be. I can't say to, I'll say Alex because he's not here. I can't say to Alex, you're not like me. You're not how I want you to be. I'm going to try and manipulate and change you to be exactly how I want you to be. We can't do that. And so God is laying down a big challenge by saying, my image is in the people around you. And he uses this to prick the conscience of people. He says, you can't murder someone because they're made in my image. He says through James, it's crazy. You use your tongue to proclaim blessings to God in heaven. And with the same tongue, you pronounce curses on people 
who are made in my image. He says it's not right. And so God uses this to prick our conscience in the way that we see other people to see that they are made in his image. And this should affect every relationship that we have. My granddad, through his working life, was a GP. And um, when he tells his story about when he was in medical school, which is about 3,000 years ago or something like that, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, he was in medical school and they were having this, this uh, tutorial and they, a patient was brought in. And he was the kind of patient that you know they're, they're here before you even see them by the stench. This patient came in, they stank, they were filthy. They were horrible in kind of lots of sense of the words. The kind of person you just want, want to touch. And the professor in charge pointed to my granddad and said, perform the examination, please. Or professor spoke like that 3,000 years ago. And he visibly recoiled. He said he, he just couldn't bring himself to examine this, this piece of meat in front of him. He just couldn't, couldn't bring himself, himself to do it. And then the professor boomed and said, Crawford, for whom Christ died. And he had to perform the examination. It changes our perspective of other people when we know that they are made in God's image, when we see that God has said, my representation is in them. And humanity is at its worst when it loses the grip of that, its grip on that reality. The slave trade is all about losing the grip on the reality that God's image is in human beings. We are at our worst when we dehumanise people the Holocaust is all about dehumanising Jews so they're nothing more than animals. Humanity's worst moments come when we fail to recognise that we are made physically in God's image. So we won't find a representation of God in the pixels of MTV or Sky Sports. We'll find him only by looking into the eyes of our brothers and sisters. That's one way of seeing um, Genesis 1 and the image of God. That's nothing to be arrogant about, by the way. That's nothing to, to, uh, to make us become puffed up about. Because Genesis also redresses that balance. There's a little footnote to verse 7 which says, The Hebrew for man, Adam, sounds like um, and maybe relates to the Hebrew for ground. So we have this paradox in our lives. We are earthly, we are of the dust, we are of the ground. Yet God has make, made us in his image. So that's meaning one. The second meaning is a, a functional meaning. And if we just continue reading um, from verse 28, you get an idea of where this comes from. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with its seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds, the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. So, mankind has dominion. Mankind is appointed as lord over all creation. And with that comes a responsibility. So, in the preceding of, uh, days of creation, we have God in front of the whole kind of heavenly court, drawing together every aspect of creation, from the stars and planets to all the different animals and creatures. And by the end of it, in this last day, God says, let's make man and give him, make him in our image, and let's give him dominion over everything. No other creature on this planet 
has the power and the skill to shape the lives of every other creature um, like we do. No other, plant, no other creature on this planet has been able to harness other animals for agriculture, for industry, for entertainment. In every way, we are lords and masters over this whole planet because we are made in God's image. It's an aspect of what being in God's image is all about. But with that comes a huge responsibility, doesn't it? If we are lords and masters and have dominion over all the plants and all the creatures, then we also have a responsibility to care for and look after the world that God has given us. And I think all this is tied up in the the refrain of Genesis 1, which is, um, God saw that it was good. Now, what does that mean? There's lots of different ideas about what it means to say that God saw that it was good. Um, Some people think it's like a moral goodness. And they'll say that the kind of creation before the fall was morally good. That's what God is saying when he says it was good. And after the fall, it became morally bad. Um, I don't think it means that, and I think the evidence is against it. But another idea is to say, well, maybe it means it's kind of talking about craftsmanship, so that the, the craftsmanship of creation was good, so that you know, the eagle's wing was perfectly crafted. Um, and again, I don't think that's, that's right either. I think actually to understand what it means when God said it was good, we have to understand what he said, means when he said it's not good. Um, that should become apparent. Because in, in chapter 2, God says what is not good. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, and he's talking, talking to, about Adam, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is what not good, being not good, is all about. The fact that man was incomplete without woman. That Adam was not complete without Eve. That is what is not good. And that tells us what good is all about. <laughs> because not good is about not being able to function properly not being able to fulfil your potential. That's what being not good is about. So therefore, when God says that the rest of creation is good, it's about it being fit for purpose. It's about it being able to reach its potential. It's about it being complete. And that purpose, that potential and that completeness was all about us, about you and me, about the creation being ready for you and I. That's what being good was all about. It's about its purpose. So it's, it's a tragedy, isn't it, that we who have been given dominion and mastership over creation are steadily making it unfit for purpose, that we're making it hostile for human beings, that we are reducing its biodiversity, that we are reversing the process, if you like. So being the image of God is about functional um, com- completeness. And we have a power, but also responsibility in that, in that department. The third and final aspect of what it means to be in the the image of God is a spiritual one. It's a meaning which lifts off from the first um, and the link passage is from Matthew chapter 22. And Vicky has disappeared. (laughs) Oh, she's there. (laughs) Why are you sat next to Andy? (laughs) So um, Vicky's going to read from us Matthew chapter 22 and starting at verse 15. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his own words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, 
We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Thanks very much, Vicky. So this uh, very telling passage where the Pharisees, as was their want, were trying to, to trap Jesus, tells a lot about what it is to be in the image of God. They were obviously working on a different plane to Jesus. They were trying to trap him um, between different national identities of being a Roman or being, or being a Jew, and they're trying to um, get him to say the wrong thing, if you like. And he undermines it, doesn't he, by getting this coin and saying, look at that physical image. Now, whose physical image is that? And they rightly say, Caesar's. And so he answers, well, give that to Caesar then. But what's in the image of God? You give back to God. And this is where the link is with our our first idea. We are in the image of God. And so we have to give ourselves back to God. That's that's Jesus' message. But I don't think we have to kind of slay ourselves on the altars just yet. Jesus is not talking about our physical bodies being given back to God. He's talking about our hearts, isn't he? He's talking about who we are, our person, and, and our energy, and our minds. He's talking about who we are. And that leads us to the, the third th- aspect of being in the image of our God. And that's our minds, our, our spirituality, the person of each one of us. There are many different things about who we are which make us stand out as being spiritually in God's image. For example, there's our sense of eternity. The fact that we have an idea of what it would be to live forever. That we can make forward plans. That we can think about our life in a a long-term picture rather than what's happening tomorrow. The fact that we have eternity um, set in our hearts is the image of God in us. The fact that we have an appreciation of beauty and that we um, can be creative in things that we do. That's the image of God in, in us. It's not just, man must make shelter, build roof, keep rain out. Man must uh, cook food. Man must run out of things man must do. <laughs> it's, do you know what? I'd like this shelter to have a... <laughs> uh, it's, I'd like this shelter to have a gothic arch. I'd like it to kind of have... Uh, be painted in, in eggshell blue. The, the, the idea that we don't just see things from a purely functional point of view, but we actually appreciate beauty. Sometimes we th- do things purely for the sake of beauty, not for any functional value at all. And the fact that we can appreciate beauty and its counterpart horror um, means that we are in the image of God, unlike other creatures. Our ability to develop relationships, which are complex, that are intricate, that are deep and that are meaningful is because our spiritual selves is in the image of God. 
I recoil from that one because my tendency is towards reclusiveness and I don't like it. But the fact is that we can't exhibit the image of God without deepening our relationships and making them more um, meaningful, if you like. We have the ability to transmit ideas, to talk to each other and and talk about abstract concepts. Um, That is all about, and having the language to do that, that is all about being in the image of God. But actually none of those touch on the essence of what it is to be in the image of God spiritually. Because the essence of being spiritually in the image of God is actually something which doesn't come very natural to us, but we we have it all um, built in. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 opens that door. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former self, sorry, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the essence of how our spiritual selves can be in the image of God. And it's in holiness and in righteousness. It's in our moral behaviour, basically. The fact that we can choose to do things in the right way, in the way that is holy. This is the image of God in our spiritual selves. It's spelled out more by Paul in Colossians chapter 3. and Verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all these things, of anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator." These moral statements, this moral self that we take on is the spiritual image of God in our lives. This is how it shines through, not in our physicalness, but in our action, that we are are moral creatures. And you get the idea that being made in God's image is not a process like that. It didn't happen in Genesis 1 verse 27 and then it stopped. God is constantly making us in his his own own image. It's a process of perfection. It's two steps forward, one step back. Now how does God do that? I need a volunteer. Jessica, is that fancy being a volunteer? (laughs) Thanks Jess, come up to the front. I've got three different ways that God might make us in our image, okay? The first, you don't mind me using this one, do you? Perhaps God kind of goes, chills a bit off here. Is that how God makes us in his image? I don't think so. You know, whenever I use one of these, the wrong bit always breaks off. Have you ever had that problem? <laughs> I chisel one bit and the bit over there comes off. Now, probably God is better at using the chisels than I am, but the problem with chisels is that they're painful and they, they create collateral damage. So I don't think God used the chisel. You don't mind me using that one, do you? Okay. Perhaps God goes... 
I know I can't improve on perfection, but this is just an analogy. <laughs> so, is that how God makes us in his own image? By painting over us? I don't think so, because it's still the same person underneath, isn't it? Paint is only superficial. It sits on top of the canvas, but the canvas stays the same underneath, so it's not a paintbrush. The, the third one, which I think is a truthful one, is actually not one you'll be very happy with, because it says that Jess is like a ball of plasticine. <laughs> but that's, I think, shows how God creates in us his image, because it's more by moulding and shaping, gradually moving bits into different parts, gradually taking the angular, sharp bits which you cut your finger on and just pushing them in a little bit and smoothing them off. That's, I believe, thank you very much, Jess, you can sit down. And that's how God creates his image in us. That's the ongoing process. It's not by chopping bits out of us and hacking us to pieces. It's not by papering over the crack, painting over the cracks. It's by gradually shifting and changing our behaviour as we conform to him. And when love and skill, the love of God and the skill of God work together, a masterpiece results. So that's how we're in God's image, three ways. We see, see God in each other. We have the responsibility of having dominion over this planet. And we try and exhibit the spiritual characteristics of God in our own lives. It's an ongoing process. It's a pro- progress towards perfection. And in the meantime, we focus on Jesus. Jesus, who Paul said earlier in this letter, is the image the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And when we see him and we see his picture, his image, we know what we're going to be like. Let's think about that now. We shall be like him. Oh, how rich the promise. What greater could our Father's love prepare? So we come to think about the glorious beauty of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Our prayer for the bread is going to be offered by you all. All honour, glory, praise and thanks are true to you, dear Lord Jesus, for what you have achieved. When the devil tempted you away from God your Father, you destroyed him completely. Please give each one of us all the strength to reject temptation and to follow you and to become more like you. Thank you for having invited us to your table to share with you your body and so become your brothers and sisters. Help each one of us to remember that it was entirely your personal decision to defeat the devil and not some other power. When we are tempted, help us please to remember this. And when we are too weak, help us please to call on you for help. Help us now and to concentrate on this bread and be thankful for each one of our brothers. Amen. Thank you, Walt. So share this bread, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and think about his beauty. Our loving, most wonderful Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be here 
this morning to be reminded so beautifully about our relationship, our wonderful family in Christ. Brothers and sisters, working together in love. Our eyes have been really open to see the beauty of everything around us, your creation, flowers, trees, animals, birds, everything we see created by you, Heavenly Father. And we have been given Jesus to see Jesus in your image. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing this is, Heavenly Father. I find words difficult to pronounce here, so which express the wonder of your creation and the wonder of the promise we have in Jesus. You sent Jesus to show us yourself and your wonderful promise that we have life everlasting to look forward to. A wonderful earth which will be full of peace and purity. No war, no death, no sickness, no illness. A wonderful, wonderful hope, Heavenly Father. And once we take this wine to remember Jesus and his suffering, our eyes are open to the very fact that this is all done through your purpose. And we are here remembering Jesus and his act of love by taking this wine. So bless it to us, Heavenly Father. We are so, so wonderfully blessed. We are thankful for it. Please help us to carry in our minds and our hearts the very fact that when we look to each other, we see our Heavenly Father and we see Jesus' example. What a wonderful blessing. So I thank you for this wine. Thank you for your love. And we offer our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake, Lord. Amen. been reading a book recently by the second man to land on the moon. Anyone remember the name of the second man to land on the moon? Ah, got you. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin is the second man to land on the moon. And in, in this book he describes the moment when they, they left the main space shuttle and they got into the Eagle, which was just a little transfer vehicle. And the, and the Eagle came down and the Eagle landed on the surface of the moon. And so it's just him and Neil Armstrong sat together in this tiny little capsule and just sat there and waited. And uh, Buzz Aldrin described a moment as they kind of looked out the window and he described it as kind of magnificent desolation. Magnificent because no one had ever been there before, but just utter desolation. And um, he said to Neil Armstrong, do you mind if I just take a moment? And he unzipped his spacesuit pocket and he pulled out a tiny little piece of bread and a little thimble full of wine. And he took bread and drank wine on the surface of the moon, or on the cap, on the, in the vehicle on the, on the moon. 
And uh, it just struck me, you know, he thought that was the most appropriate I could think thing I could do as the first person ever to touch down in this place. The most important thing I can do is remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells me that this image of beauty is important wherever we go this week. Even if it's only as far as Stretford Moor and not the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> wherever we go, this image of the Lord Jesus Christ in which we see our Father This is the most important thing that we can take with us. So let's sing together to close from Praise the Lord number 221. As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness, ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. After which Andrew Campion is going to close in prayer. Father, indeed, our our prayer is that you will help us to blaze for you in this week ahead, Lord. Our prayer is that this world might be flooded with your love and your kingdom. But, Lord, you've called us all from light, from darkness into light, but often, Lord, darkness comes into our lives. Sometimes not that we want it, but we go through difficult times, and they do seem dark, Lord. But help us to strive and fan the flames of faith and truth in one another so that we do indeed rekindle that love and that brightness for you in the days ahead. And Father, we know that you're never far from us and help that too to give us strength to turn away from the things in this world that perhaps commit so much of our time and energy and help us to be more faithful to you. So Father, with these great gifts of the knowledge of your love for us, we go out into another week and we thank you for all your blessings, for all prayers answered and we pray that these things might give us confidence to trust in you while we wait for other things that we pray for. And most earnestly, Lord, we pray for your son's return and we thank you for his love and his grace and the care and the knowledge that we're all individually known and special to you. And we thank you for that through Jesus Christ. Amen.